There are two settings on this. The European setting is a very famous plate, resided at Bearsville Studios. Records from the band, Todd Rundgren, uh, Jeff Buckley's Grace album. Mm -hmm. The U.S. setting is my beloved Otacon plate that was made in Nashville in 1971, and it is just the most magical-sounding piece of metal and electronics. <laughs> Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by Sonarworks, helping you get the most out of your mixes by correcting the sound of the speakers and headphones in your studio so you get your mix right the first time. Are you sick of doing multiple mixes and still you can't get the low end right? How would it feel to have badass bass the first time? Get a 21-day free trial at sonarworks.com. Are you ready to rock the perfect mix? This episode is sponsored by OWC. Other World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and use Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars. It's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Brian Charles, a producer, engineer, and now plug-in designer from Boston, Massachusetts. Brian's studio, Zippa, has become a renowned destination for indie rock bands from New England and around the world. As the producer-guitarist in the late 90 bands, The Sheila Divine, Brian still tours Europe and makes records with the group and continues to grow his network of younger bands to make records with. Brian's credits span 30 years of record-making from the punk band The Vatican Commandos, fronted by a young Moby in the 80s, to the indie guitar pop of the 90s from bands like The Gigolo Aunts, Dirt Merchants, and The Figs, to the present day with artists like Mike Slap and the power trio Weekend Friends. Embracing the idea that to create a successful life in music these days, you have to do everything you know how to do with a passion and a love for it, Brian also created a plug-in company called Rare Signals with a few of his musician friends, and they recently released their first plug-in called the Transatlantic Plate Reverb, which sounds fantastic. I also want to give a shout-out again to Mr. Mark Rubel for the introduction when he gave me heads up about Brian's new transatlantic plate reverb, um, which of course led to this interview. So please welcome Brian Charles to Recording Studio Rockstars. Brian, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock, Lidge. Great to meet you, man, and to be hanging out. Um, as we were chatting about before the call, you're up there in, in uh, Boston, which is where I'm from originally too. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I'm always really uh, tickled to be talking to people from from Boston uh, podcast interview that's actually coming out this week um, bef you know before this interview but uh, simultaneously this week is um, Matt Bowden originally from Q division oh, sure. in Boston too and uh, you know I grew up there and I was loving music and I was really into jazz do you remember um, 
the the radio station uh, that was playing Eric in the evening. Do you remember that rat jazz show back in the eighties? Uh, I don't remember that show, but that was a little, probably just a little before my. Okay, all right, all right, dig it. Um, well, anyway, I was I was just like I was getting really into music and into jazz and stuff like that, but I um I had no idea that there was so much cool music actually coming out of the town I was in until I left. You know. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. We would we would <laughs> love to have you stay here, make well, some records. Um, and then what was it? There was another uh, studio I remember hearing a lot about up there called Apache. Fort Apache. Fort yeah. Apache, yeah. Yeah, it was where, um, I mean, they were famous for you know, a lot of the Pixies music. And, um, and you know, Paul Caldery and Sean Slade were, uh, were, were the two guys kind of fronting up that, that, that whole scene. It was very cool. And is very this, cool does that scene. still exist now, too? No, Fort Apache uh, closed. Oh, it was probably about eight years ago, and they they had all they had moved as well from uh, from the from their old space, and um, then Paul Caldery took the old space over and called it Camp Street for a little while. Um, he's since moved to upstate New York, I believe. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. enough about all those guys. Let's hear about you, man. It's great to have you on the show. Um, tell us a little bit more about who you are. Uh, briefly, and you know, how'd you get into music, and and tell us about Zippa Studios up there. Yeah, sure. I I came to Boston uh, with with a bunch of my pals, basically that I was in a band with. Um, after high school, I was living in Connecticut, and after high school, um, uh, everybody kind of came up here to go to different colleges. Me as well, and um, and we ended up basically being. 18 year olds playing clubs in Boston with our power pop band. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, around that time, I mean, I guess I should say prior to that, I mean, in high school, I was always recording. I had a couple Philco, uh, sort of open reel design, but closed reel, like compact made to be compact, uh, open reel style. Um, took the little small quarter inch reels, uh, recorders and I used to do sound on sound with those. Uh, I have a twin brother who's a musician as well, and we played in bands together for years. But um, you know, we would try to like recreate like the like songs from like the Jam. You know, like let's record in the city in our basement. You know, stuff like that. Right, and and that was a couple of the videos you sent. Is was a um, a series you were doing on YouTube where you're recreating different records and sounds, right? That's right. I did this thing called Tuesday Night Recording Club uh, a few years ago uh, with my bandmate, Aaron Perino from the Sheila Divine. And um, the idea was we'd pick a seminal album or classic recording and, uh, and Aaron would write a song that we could use, an original song, and I would research all the recording techniques. And then we would bring musicians in for like a four hour block in the evening, you know, after the normal session was done at the studio. And uh, and we would basically employ those recording techniques with this original song, and uh, and sort of uncover the, as best we could at times um, how certain albums were were made as far as how you could recreate those sounds. That's so cool. Um, you know, there's a a group down here in Nashville that doesn't do the studio version of that, but they do live shows called the Long Players, and they'll study a particular record, and then that'll They'll just play that, which I don't know how common that is everywhere. But I, I just love that concept of um, really, you know, digging in deep and studying a particular genre or, or artist and, and trying to recreate it. 
Yeah, it's totally nerdy and totally a labor of love. And I mean, I, I really liked getting out my old sound on sound magazines and my tape ops and and reading interviews with producers from, you know, with like Rick Rubin and and um, and and so many others just to, to yeah. kind of, you know, uh, do the research and then figure out what mics and what guitar pedals I need to get this or that sound. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, there was one of the videos in the playlist, uh, Rockstars, uh, which of course I put together a bunch of Brian's work in YouTube and you just click through the, the show notes for that. Um, but there was a uh, Smashing Pumpkins, you guys were doing some of that and um, you're getting some of those great guitar sounds with the Strat. And there was, a, uh, there was a particular pedal I used to have in the studio that just magically disappeared like things do from the studio mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was supposed to be part of that, you know specific distortion, but it's just cool, man. So Rock says, I suggest you check that out as well. Yeah. And on, on my studio site, there's also a more in-depth for, for the people that care, uh, in, you know, nerdy people like me, there's, I kept a blog for, for each one of them. And so there's a technical blog, uh, for each one of the episodes as Great. well. Very cool. Well, so tell us more about Zippa. And I love the spelling of it too. It's like, it's wicked cool. It's wicked, <laughs> it's wicked pissa. Wicked pissa. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, basically, I was when I was 18, I was in this town, I was in a band. Um, I went into a studio called Newberry Sound and uh, and and recorded uh, a handful of songs, three or four songs uh, with this local, just local engineer. And um, and I fell in love with with the whole process. Um, I had been in a studio in uh, in high school but it was a little bit different and I sort of felt like I couldn't say anything or even look at the engineers. I just, it just felt a lot. Uh, it felt like it wasn't very conducive to me asking questions and I had a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but you know, when I was up here, once I came up here to Boston and I was in this, in this, uh, my second time in a studio, um, I was just completely enamored by it. I was offering to come by and just hang out. And, um, they were nice enough. The guys at the street were nice enough to let me come by and basically, basically intern. Um, and most of my time was spent on the auto locator for the tape machine. Um, mm -hmm. I was I, very into song craft and, uh, song structure. And so I was good on the auto locator. I, I mean, there's a lot I did not know about being in a studio, but one thing I knew was if I looked at the numbers on the auto locator and, and the producer said, take me to the second verse. Well, I, I kind of knew where that was pretty quick. And so I made his life a little easier in the studio by, you know, tracking that song form in my head, whatever it was, whatever stage we were at and associating a number with it and keeping track of it all. It's really simple, but you're like that, a human pro tools. Yeah. That kind of got me. Oh, I wish uh, that, that kind of got me in the door though. Um, and I got to know the bands in town as well. And um, is, I, I remember. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, is Newbury yeah. Studio, is that any relation to the famous Newbury comic, comics that I remember up um, there too? Harvard Square on, area and all that? It's very close to the Newbury comics. It's on Newbury Street um, in the back bay. But it's actually, Newbury Sound was right across the street from WBCN, which was, was like the big rock and roll station here. Yeah. And we used to do, Newbury Sound used to do live broadcasts, uh, like so they, they were lunchtime concerts for a while. And I remember, um, I remember so many like bands coming into town 
an artist coming into town and and coming into Newbury Sound to do uh, to do their broadcasts. And I got to sit in on on some of those with guys like Bo Diddley and uh, John Hyatt. And uh, nice. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was it was um, it was a really cool experience just um, being involved in that and seeing people working live. I mean, in the studio was was huge, you know, problem solving and keeping you cool. And, you know, there was there was a lot of lessons learned. There were a lot of lessons learned back then. Yeah, there uh, tensions can can run high in the studio for sure. I feel like um, it's probably still that way now, but um, certainly at a time where the technology of recording seemed to be in such a precarious balance to actually capture anything. All the, it was, it was const, constantly in a state of this whole thing might fall apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's kind of exciting. I got to say, like like later, I really appreciated the rush from that, and you know we. We still have a tape machine at Zippa, and it's actually getting more use now than it has in like, you know, like the previous ten years. That's you know, great. Uh, this past year, so. Um, but there's something exciting about being on tape, like recording on tape as well, that I love. Like, I used to hate punching in on tape and punching while well, punching out was worse. But um, what are you guys using for a tape machine? Uh, we have a Studer A80 Mark IV. Oh, cool! And um, that's the. Yeah, um, uh, the AA. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, that's one of the older ones with like the stacks of cards above the yeah the, the uh, deck, right? That's right. We have a two inch twenty four, and uh, yeah, and the thing is great. I mean, it really, it really changes the way people, you know, younger kids coming in, the young younger bands coming in that want to record on tape. It really changes the way that they think about their music, um, and it's really cool to see um, people not looking at a screen. You know, you'll look around mm-hmm. the room and people are just kind of like their eyes are closed or they're like looking off into space and they're, everyone's processing the music in a different way. Um, it's very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I, I have a gigantic computer screen in front of me in my studio. In fact, <laughs> I just replaced the one I had because it bit the dust. I stole the one from the house and took it down there. And so now it's even bigger. <laughs> and and it really looks great, and it's sort of a lot of fun. You know, the computeriness of it is pretty fun. But like you, even if you close your eyes, it's like the the sh- the light is, you know, going through your eyelids. Right. Um. And and I've recently I've got a uh, I guess you could do it with your keyboard as well and stuff. But I've got a, a trackpad. Uh, I feel like I'm accumulating more more little control devices because each one seems to control the screen. You know, does one thing well. Yeah. But um, and the trackpad's great for like swiping up and down in Pro Tools. But you, with a three finger swipe, you can swipe to the right, and it does the um, it switches your desktop, you know. And it's yeah. a, it's like an instant great little trick for making all that Pro Tools just disappear off the screen, and now you've just got this dark screen where you could have you know you could kind of delete all the widgets, and it's right. Oh, so that's a cool idea. That's, yeah, it's a nice little trick for. You know, let's not look at the computer while we're listening, and you don't have to stop anything or get get complex with it. Just three finger swipe on your trackpad. Yeah, it's like away. Yeah, away. Yeah, you're just throwing the throwing the session out the window. <laughs> yeah, um, that's cool. Well, that's very cool. Uh, uh, let's see what what I want to ask you. So, so you're working on tape. The a, um, Studer A80 is one of those ones that I remember sounding really, really good. Um, it's not the 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 later 827 was the one that had all the automated features in it, right? That was sort of, you could almost yeah. automate the punch-ins and the punch-outs. Um, so you yeah, probably well, the, have to yeah. like really pay attention when you're punching, right? 
Yeah, I mean, the 827 had global calibration setting, you know, features and all that kind of stuff. This, the A80 was, you know, was, was I think it was might have been the last, maybe it was the A800 that was the last one that had the uh, the transformer, you know, cards for each channel. Yeah, well, and, and it's funny because we were talking about Smashing Pumpkins. I spent uh, months up at Smart Studios, Butch Vig's place and you know, in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, you know, and he had recorded a bunch of the Smashing Pumpkins records. Um, but, and I remember those guys having a pair of the A27 sitting there in the studio too. Yeah. I mean, they were really popular and they were good, reliable machines. Yeah. Well, so when you guys record to tape now, would a project stay on tape or would you use some hybrid of hitting the tape, but then moving it over to Pro Tools to continue working? Yeah, it depends on the project. I mean, 90% of the time, I would say 95% of the time, it ends up in the computer for mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, although there are a couple artists that I'm that I'm working with uh, where we do, it's very retro sounding, like 60s soul kind of recordings. And I have kept some of those on tape and just finished them that way because, um, you know, like we would, the aesthetic is different. You know, you, we'd re- be recording strings sections with one RCA 77 and, you know, so it was a much more manageable mix. It was sort of yeah. built as the tracks went down, um, you know, but yeah, the tape machine's kind of like a big effect, you know, it's a, it's a big effect box to me now. So, um, so you must have a console to be working with as well. Yeah. Right now, um, I have a Neotech Elite in there. Okay, cool. And uh, for years, we had a Neve 53 series from the 70s, uh, which my, uh, originally, I guess I got a little off track, but originally when I was in Boston, like f- like sort of interning at, um, at Newbury Sound, after, after that period, I was just freelancing all over the place, uh, anywhere I could go. And wherever I could get a better rate, I would just go and I would, I was good at being part of the music scene and talking to bands and bringing them around to wherever we could afford to go. And one day I found this place uh, that my friend Pete Weiss and his friend Ken Thomas had called, uh, it was called Ziploc Recording back then. Nice. And um, and they were charging me some engineer, amazing engineer's rate of like, I think, it was, I think it was like $15 an hour for studio time for me. And then I wow. could charge my clients above that. And, um, it was a giant open garage. There were no walls. It was really kind of horrible, like <laughs> the way it looked, but there were Neve modules and there was, um, this little, I forget what console was an attack scorpion or something back then, but there was a lot of cool outboard and I brought a band in there and we got really good results. And so I started bringing everybody there and the, the, the other guy, Pete and Ken were, they, they came to me and said, you know, would you like to become a partner here? Cause I was kind of blocking out a lot of time. And that's when I decided, well, yeah, that'd be cool to have my home own, like home base. Uh, but maybe we could put up some walls and, uh, maybe we could some, take lock yeah. off the name and just call it Zippa. Well, <laughs> that, it's funny that <laughs> yeah, I think there was a, a cease and desist from the bag company. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I, yeah. And, um, I don't know, we were doing a lot of like Western mass metal at the time. And so it was just kind of a joke. I think the Zippa thing and I don't know, once it's on the back of a bunch of records kind of stuck. That's great. That's great. Um, well, cool. So that is, that's where you've been and that's where you are now. Same, same location or have you guys moved around? Yeah. Same location. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be 30 years, uh, in January. 
Um, so just out of curiosity, kind of describe the area. What's it like there? What's, you know, where your studios, what's Boston like to somebody who's never been there? Yeah. So, well, Boston is kind of like, you have this area that feels like a downtown area, like maybe like a sort of like a, maybe like a London, England style cobblestone gaslight kind of area. Yeah. And then as it sort of branches out, um, it's a bunch of little neighborhoods uh, that are like you'll 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 come off of uh, one of the main roads like Commonwealth Avenue, which is a famous one, and off of that road looks like little subdivisions um, with houses, and it looks almost rural in a, in a in a way. And Zippa is located between Commonwealth Avenue and Beacon Street, which are two long roads that kind of go all the way into the city. And so we're right on the on the Brookline. Uh, Brighton border. Okay, and, cool, cool. Yeah, and one of the nice things about our studio is we have a, a free parking lot, which I think <laughs> is one of the reasons we're still in business. You know, because you know, if you have a building you can make noise in and you can park a car, uh, you know, that's pretty much. They're not coming for me. They're coming for that probably. Yeah, I, I feel like the fact that I learned how to drive growing up in Boston has empowered me to handle a car just about anywhere anywhere in the world oh man that's an overachiever move right there yeah <laughs> yeah well cool man um well let's see what else do we want to talk about any other things about the studio you want to tell us about um do you guys have uh, like what's the layout of your rooms and things like that how, what's the how, yeah. how is the space usable for a band and how does that work for you yeah so i mean right now the main studio is is sort of it's a control room and a live room side by side so um you know, with the control room, if I'm sitting in the control room, I look to the left and the live room is to, is, is to my left. Okay. In, in front is, is a smaller ISO booth, um, that we can use for like dead drum sounds, um, things like that. But it's usually a place that we go bow amplifiers off and the band will set up in the, in the, in the larger room. And do you um, have glass? So you're sort of looking into yeah. the dead room, looking into the live room. Yeah. There's glass on both sides and, um, and then on my right is kind of just racks of gear that uh, I, I didn't plan for it to be designed this way, but it just kind of kept going up. And right. so, so like one wall is sort of gear. And, um, and uh, on the other side of that wall is space that we just acquired that we've been trying to get for literally for 30 years. And we're building uh, a second room. Oh, uh, cool. So, That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be a smaller room to the right, and um, it'll have an ISO booth and a mix, a nice mix setup, and um, it'll be we'll be able to tie it in to the lot to the larger uh, space as well for those kinds of sessions. And that and, stack of gear is the same one in the photo that you sent me that looks like that where I, where I wrote yeah. back and I was like, "Can I have all that gear, please?" <laughs> yes, yeah, that's it. Um, what's some of your fun, I just, let's geek out on gear for a sec. What's some of the All fun right. stuff that's in that giant wall of gear? Um, I'm a really big fan of very Mew limiters, um, especially ones from like the fifties and sixties and, and earlier. Um, but the, the amplifiers and the transformers in them are just so incredible. Um, and, uh, there's such a, there's such a sound to them when you use them as mic pre's because most of them have enough gain to be used as a mic pre. And, um, cool. you know, when you, when you buy like a federal, like a federal yeah. limiter these days, they're usually H padded down. You know, they put, uh, they put a series of resistors in the shape of an H. Uh, that's why they call it an H pad that, 
ma- makes it usable in on like an insert or in your typical um, chain. Yeah, I remember those being like a really high voltage rating, like plus eight or twelve. Yeah, in- and instead you- of the usual plus four. Yeah, and you can I I I take the pads out of those things if they're in there, and I use them as mic pre's, and then I'll have some special cables at my uh, TT cables with pads sort of built into the middle of the cable if I want to use it on an insert or anything else. Well, so that's pretty cool. So let me, let me picture that. So you can plug a mic straight into this compressor, this tube compressor, but because the gain is so high, it'll it'll act as a mic pre and a compressor all in one. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah, does that fantastic. give you a, like is there is there a way to describe what the quality of that sound is that's different from using a mic pre first and then a compressor? Yeah, well, the mic pre, I mean, the mic pre is first in the federal circuit. Um, you know, that's the first amplification stage, and then there's the gain, the very mu tube stage, which is a remote shut off tube style of gain reduction. So as as the voltage decreases, the tube discharges, and your gain is affected that way. Oh, um, cool. And so on the other side of that circuit is, a, is, a, is an output amplifier as well. So the thing's just loaded with transformers and gain. And it happens to be uh, a very silky sounding unit. You know, it's like a very special sort of like almost like a high class sound. And you wouldn't know that if you were just using it as a limiter. But when you really use it like an amplifier, it's like immediately you hear this amazing hi-fi, silky top end. That's cool. You know uh, what else is cool about the Federal? I just want to say is yeah. um, in the manual, it has instructions on how to destroy it if it got in the hands of the enemy. Oh, right. Because, well, yeah, well, tell us about the history of the Federal. I thought it was military-based, but I don't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, it's military. And it was it was made, I believe it was made so that you could throw the signal, our communication signals, farther uh, because you were compressing the signal. And um, that's how I feel about music. Yeah, exactly. You know, you gotta, you gotta, uh, you gotta keep it out of the enemy hands too. So awesome! So instructions to destroy it, <laughs> destroy yeah. how to destroy this record. Yeah, it was like smash glass tubes and you know incinerate this piece and that part and wow. scatter these things. You know, you don't want they didn't want anybody having that technology. Wow, and then and then smudge the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So um, what else you got in the rack of gear there, the giant wall of awesome? Um, let's see. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm also a fan of those. Probably my favorite uh, my favorite old school limiters are the Collins 26U. Oh, yeah, right. Limiters, and I have a couple of those, and they are just like amazing, um, both as amplifiers and as limiters. And I've modded mine uh, so that they have, I can get a really quick release time out of them. So they're usable on drums and all kinds of things that, you know, these big dopey limiters weren't really designed to. Right. They're a slower release time typically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very easy to, uh, to mod them, you know, with just some, I was just experimenting with different resistors, uh, on the, in, in, on the release side. And, um, yeah, and I got, I got them both to the point where they're just like two of the most popular, uh, limiters in the whole place. Yeah, that's cool. I, I, you know, it makes me think that when this stuff was designed, was it just originally designed just for voice, you know, was yeah, it even probably. designed for music? I don't know. It was a broad, they were, they were broadcast units, you know, those, those Collins made radio mixers and amplifiers and modular consoles back, you know, way back when. Yeah. Um, those things are pretty cool if you can find them. 
Yeah. That's cool for looking, sure. I should say. They, yeah. might, they might not be so much fun to work on now if they're like, you know, too far gone. Yeah. Well, Collins, if you ever find one of those Collins mic pre's, it's called a 212Y. It is one of them. It it's it has about as much gain as one of those old RCAs that every, that are going for like a gazillion dollars, but in the circuit's very similar to those, um, but they're a fraction of the price oh, if you can good. find them. Not after this podcast. Oh, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, cool. So uh, maybe we should just jump in and start talking about some of your music too. Um, you know, one of the other videos that you shared, which was from your Tuesday Night Recording Club, was this. Um, you know, you're talking about studying Elvis and doing a session with that. And I wonder if you wanted to just sort of tell the story behind that. Sure. Yeah. Part of our Tuesday Night Recording Club series, um, one of the albums that that we really wanted to do was um, was the Elvis Presley 1956 era of recording when uh, Elvis went to RCA Studios in, in New York City. And um, one of the incredible things about uh, that recording uh, besides the fact that Elvis was a perfectionist and made everybody play the songs like literally like 30 to 40 to 50 times, like oh, man. <laughs> to get it right. Um, I read a lot of things uh, about uh, regarding that. Um, but, uh, you know, it was really fun to, uh, to, to, you know, to, to use microphones and, and mic priests from that era and record on tape to get that sound. And, you know, the, we did that recording with no headphones. Everybody was in the room uh, playing together. So the drummer had to use dynamics in a different way than he would if he, if everybody was in headphones. Um, we used the null spots of the ribbon microphones, uh, the RCA 77 and 7s and 44. Um, yeah, I kind of saw that in the video, but maybe you could explain that a little bit more so that we can visualize it. Yeah, so the ribbon microphones are typically inherently a figure eight microphone. And so, you know, for those who may not know, it means that they have pickup patterns on both sides of the microphone. So what happens, what's inherent to that design is there's overlap on the edges, on the fringe of those pickup patterns, which creates phase cancellation and becomes what's known as a null spot. So you have really great rejection on the, on the sides you know, at 90 degrees from where the pickup of the, of the ribbon happens, mm -hmm. also on the top of the microphone as well. So All by right. setting up those microphones in a line next to each other uh, is one way, one way that a lot of those recordings were made, where you you would have Elvis singing into a, an you know a ribbon mic an RCA 77, and then you have the Jordanaires next to him, right next to him, you know, with the null spot. Um, canceling the things that you don't want to spill over into that microphone. So is it is it sort of a funny looking way that these are arranged, or is it really like two mics like side by side where the the um, sides of the mic are just facing each other, like you set them up in a line? Yeah, that's right. The sides of the mic would be facing each other, and uh, also the drums. You know, there's a single RCA seventy seven, uh, and typically it was a C one that they used on a lot of those Elvis sessions, which is different from the DX, the 77 DX that everybody knows, mm -hmm. you know, from David Letterman's desk. And, right. and so on the C1 has lower output. So it's great above a drum kit. And it also has a little bit of, it has a, what they call the magnet they refer to as a motor. It has a less powerful motor. And so, um, and 
I don't know if that's the reason, but there's less low end. It just seems to work well um, on on a drum kit and a lot of that stuff. In the pictures of RCA, you can see the C1 over the drums. So now, where would they put the drums? You know, you got you got Elvis singing. Now he's playing probably playing guitar too, or was he just singing on this stuff? Sometimes he would have an acoustic, but it wouldn't be mic'd. And a lot of times, I think it would just you might hear a little bit of the you know almost sounds like a a washboard or something on those recordings, you know, because it's not really mic'd. Um, oh, so he's you can hear that he's the pick on the strings in the distance, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So so he's on a uh, a seventy seven singing. So, so it's the, this mic is picking up his voice and it's picking up whatever's on the other backside of the mic too. And then the Jordanaires are to, you know, to his left or his right on yeah. a, on a mic that's facing this, you know, yeah, uh, another on figure the same eight. plane. Yeah. And the, so then, so then the side of Elvis's mic doesn't hear the Jordanaires next to him and the side of the Jordanaires mic doesn't hear Elvis next to them. Yeah, that's the idea. Is you do get a little spillover, but it's it's more about the cancellation. You, you get you get a good enough amount of cancellation that it's it's workable. Yeah, that you can adjust the levels and mix it a little bit. Yeah, and the same goes for the drums. I mean, all of that stuff is sort of set up in a line almost. Uh, you know, to to take advantage of the null spots. Okay, so then the then the drum mic is sort of over to the side of those vocal mics, and the drummer's just somewhere there. <laughs> no, is the yeah. drum mic sort of facing down to the side, but like facing down, pointing down towards the drums? Yeah, it's pointing like, it's like flipped. It's like an RCA 77. So it's that pill-shaped microphone flipped upside down and then angled towards the drums. So the null spot that they're utilizing in that case is actually the top of the microphone. So that, you know, the, the top, like it was a flashlight from that null spot would be expanding out towards, you know, the rest of the instruments in the room. And and, um, you know, the upright bass from the pictures I saw was actually put in a spot um, where that microphone was probably picking up some of the lower uh, side of the drum kit as well. Cool. Yeah, that's so, so clever. Very cool. Well, Rockstars, again, there's a great video where Brian takes you through this whole thing and, you know, explains this and sets up the session. What were some of the other instruments um, Oh, that's on the YouTube channel or on, on the YouTube playlist? Um, what were some of the other instruments that you guys were including on that session that were kind of needed to be positioned and placed? Um, on the Elvis session? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, the funny thing is it was the quickest Tuesday night recording club session we we <laughs> we had because it was literally, I think we ran the song two or three times and and it was only five microphones and we were done. Uh, so I love you know, no headphone sessions. I know. It's so cool. <laughs> and and uh, it really is a rush too. I mean, it's 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 amazing how these days we have headphone mixers and all this individual control over over um, over your you know what the artist's hearing. And it's funny how when when you're just in a room with a bunch of people, like I don't know. I think in some ways people play better. Um, yeah. You know. Well, I've done. Um, I've I've really enjoyed doing no headphone sessions. I don't get to do them often. But when I do them, just the whole thing is really exciting. Um, it, it sounds, it, there's a, uh, so I did a jazz album like that and I had, you know, a bunch of people in one space where, you, where the part of you that likes to control things and do isolation and all that thinks there's no way this is going to work. Everybody's right on top of each other and all these mics are right next to each other. And then it works. And then you're like, 
Wow, that sounds great. And then not only that, but the fact that everything's bleeding into each other almost is like um, a secret mixing weapon that that just glues everything together in a really nice way. Right. You know what? You know what I learned regarding that too is is like you know when you have those bands into record and and the singer's really good and they kind of want to be in the same room with the band and you know you're thinking in your head, they're like, you know, I might want to keep my vocals, but I want to be in the room with the band. And that's happened to me a bunch of times, you know, and in the back of your mind, you're thinking, yeah, we're going to end up retracking these, right. you know, I hope. You and, know? and not only that, but this mic that you're singing on is going to be my favorite drum sound <laughs> mic, and I'm going to have to delete it and I'll be frustrated about it. Right. Well, one thing I, I learned um, from doing sessions like that is, you know, when I was younger, like my first, and it makes sense, my my first inclination was to take that singer and move him away, him or her, away from the drum kit, like the loud thing in the room. Mm-hmm. But what I found was when I did that, um, the, you hear the distance of the drums in the room. You hear the room sound, which makes it actually sound more polluted than yeah. if I put the singer right on top of the drum kit. And, and I've done that and gotten amazing results where it doesn't sound as roomy and washy and uncontrollable because there isn't that distance of the drum hit yeah, leaking into the mic. Yeah, that's such a great tip. And and when I interviewed Matt Rossbang, I keep giving him shout outs for sharing that tip first on the podcast, but he, he had brought that up too. And and then I remember trying that on some stuff and I was like, wow, this is great. Yeah. Um, now, of course, you can't have the drums too loud next to that vocal mic, but if you're going for no headphones, then you can't do that anyway. And and everybody's self-balancing, which is you know the beauty of it all. Right. And, you know, one step like, you know, related to that, one step away from that is, um, and this will probably change as we're, as we're building the second room, but, um, you know, right now we still have our old school headphone setup, which is with power amps and we're sending from cues. And right. so we, there are two mixes and the engineer is making the mix, uh, for the, for, you know, there's just two mixes for everybody. And, you know, we've had certain people think, oh no, this is not going to be good. And every single time I've done it, I've managed to make people happy and, and it becomes a non-issue and people are just playing. You, know? you mean, so as opposed to this modern age of thinking like, oh, I've got my own personal mixer and I'm going to mix my own headphones. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes that can be isolating to a, a player or you might, you know, sometimes people are missing out on things and, you know, listening in a different way. Um, I find that more often than not, the musicians don't really know what to do with any complexity of headphones. Yeah, Uh, just go around and listen to their mixes. Yeah, exactly. Because (laughs) more often than not, um, if if the headphones just happen to be totally screwed up, you know, between you and the and the the two mix that you're sending them, they're not going to be the ones that that quickly and accurately let you know that something's not right with them. Which is one of the reasons why. As an engineer, we need to we just need to remember to get our our asses out of the chair and go in there and put on everybody's headphones and listen to them if you can. Make sure everything sounds great because you know we're trained to know what great sound is right away, and so we'll pick up on it very quickly. But the musicians often will they'll just you know muscle right through it and not even know that the headphones are you know that in mono by accident or distorted because the gain's wrong on the the little mixer box or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you're the person, the engineer's the one is the one controlling 
when you're controlling the headphone situation, you feel responsible to make it good and to make it, you know, what people need. And so you're communicating with the artist in that way. Um, I just think that that's always better if you're, if you're communicating, you know, with them on that level. Yeah. Um, that said, I think if you do know what you're doing with a headphone mix, you know, so, so Brian, when you go out there and put on headphones and you're doing an overdub, I'm sure you're like, you want, you know, exactly very quickly what you need loud and soft in your headphones and, and, um, yeah. you know, like I'll, I'll take a remote laptop with me around to the studio and, and sort of like dial in the mix a little bit and adjust it for what I need. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's easier for guys like us when we're on that side of the glass. Cause yeah, we're very aware of what we need, but it's important, you know, when it's important to t- to let the artist know, Hey, let me know if you need more, you know, let them know your terms, you know, that they can communicate on. Let me know if you need more track or more of what you're recording or, you know, I, I kind of just sort of lay out basic terms that they can use and sure enough, they use them. Yeah. Hey, do you feel when you go, uh, so when you go on the other side of the glass, what's your instrument, guitar? Yeah, mostly guitar. Yeah. Um, and are you, uh, so you say it's easier for us to know what's needed, but do you find yourself getting kind of frustrated quickly? <laughs> um, you mean when I'm on that side of the glass? Yeah, because I playing? do. I'm like, <laughs> like, I'm so psyched to be playing guitar and I'm so yeah. pissed that I have to be an engineer again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and then there's the other part of it that's just like, you know, you can't help but say, just, I wish I could just do it. Yeah, let right. me do it. Right. right. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah and right. I'm, wanna... I, I'm really lucky that I have really nice interns and assistants to help me that put up with me. Yeah. Why don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Cool, man. Um, well, that the Elvis session sounds super cool. So, Rockstars, I encourage you to check that out. Let's talk a little bit about your band, Sheila Divine. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, you, you've been playing and, and touring with those guys for years. What are some things that you learned about hitting the studio from playing in your band, Sheila Divine? Well, the funny thing is the Sheila Divine started as a trio and um, I produced their first album, actually the first EP and then the albums after that as well. And um, when we were in the studio uh, in those days, that was 1998 in Boston. Um, it's funny, like the singer in, of, of the band, um, traded me a gift certificate to the sharper image that he won from like calling a radio station <laughs> for a day of studio time. He was like, you could buy one of those new digital cameras. And I was like, that's, you could that buy sounds- a neck massaging pillow. <laughs> right. Something I really needed. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, we went into the studio and, and, uh, and worked on three songs and they ended up, um, they ended up getting the band signed. That was, a, a that was a good time for that too. There, yeah. I mean, man, everybody was getting signed around here in the nineties and, um, you know, so we would, uh, you know, we went into the studio and we had a little bit of a local, um, there was a local label that signed the band at first. Um, so we had a little bit of a budget to, to work with and then Roadrunner Records stepped in and, uh, and offered the band a deal. And then, and then touring happened and things like that. And, it was mainly like, you know, the three guys going out there on the road. And then if there were, there were some larger shows or local shows, um, I would play, I would do those. Like they did a tour with Morrissey and like one of the shows was at the Beacon Theater. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a trio on that stage, you know, as a new band is like really overwhelming, I imagine. So, 
you know, I got a call to come out and play that show and I would do things like that. Um, around well, that time. It was probably partly your fault because when you guys were in the studio, you helped them, you know, come up with these great like secondary guitar parts that now needed to be played from the stage, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I didn't design it that way or mean it to happen that way, but yeah, I played a lot on, uh, you know, every once in a while I would play a part on a record, uh, on those records and, um, or we'd come up with parts together that needed to be covered. And yeah. And, you know, years later I ended up just you know, I guess for the past eight years or something, I guess I've just been playing with the band full time. All right. So maybe I asked my question wrong. It was sort of like, what did you learn about hitting the studio from playing in the band? But it's more like, what did you learn about playing a live show with the band from having started in the studio? Yeah. And I mean, it's funny. I, I built a custom pedal board that had things that shouldn't have been, that weren't pedals that I had to use loops for, loop selectors for, to recreate some of the sounds, um, on the records and uh but that made the live shows you know that made the live shows more fun and sound sound cool how, how many people do you think are still doing that so rock stars what he's talking about is um now you know you can buy like a box that digitally does everything inside it and so you're you know you hit one switch and you've recalled all these complex guitar sounds um but before that you had to have a whole bunch of pedals right and you had to hit a switch that would redirect your sound through different looped outputs of the board and mix and match your, your individual guitar pedals that way. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Loop selector, basically like, you know, accessing different chains of effects. Do, do you feel like people are still doing that kind of old school method for guitars a lot? Or do you, do you feel like there's a, that's sort of a disappearing art of guitar pedal boards? I think the, the boutique pedal makers and, you know, and all that have sort of rekindled um, that type of thing. I mean, judging from guitar players that come into the studio now, seems like everybody's got one of those pedal train boards with like a whole bunch of pedals that look like candy on, you know, right. what is that thing? What does that one do? <laughs> you know? And, uh, yeah. So I, I think it's coming back. That's you know? cool. All right. Dig it. It's kind of like getting, um, cool gear in the studio on that, that rack, that wall behind you. Yeah, Totally. Um, yeah. All right, well, let's talk about a, a, another record that you've been working on recently. There's a um, band called Weekend Friends, and you send a link to that. That's also in the YouTube playlist. Um, and those guys have that. Like, immediately, I was like, oh, man, this just, like, just takes me back to this cool, takes me to the 90s. It takes me to all this music that I loved. Um, and they've got what I what I wrote down as calling kind of like a a classic, quiet, loud Pixies meets Veruca Salt production and sound. And I wondered if you wanted to just sort of talk about um, the importance of creating dynamics in, in music like that, where you're from the verse to the chorus and um, whether there were any challenges to getting the guitar tones and levels right if you're sort of dropping in big distortion on choruses and that kind of thing. Or, or maybe just talk about the band and, and that whole, you know, their whole sound. Yeah, right on. Um, well, Weekend Friends... Um, First of all, I should say um, Annie Hoffman is the bass player in that band, and she is uh, also a Zippa staff engineer and uh, very talented, not only as a bass player, but as an engineer and a producer. Um, and she uh, she basically recorded that record uh, on you know on off hours at the studio uh, over time, oh. and um, and uh, and I got brought in to mix it. And so, um, 
you know, it's, it's funny. I've worked with Annie a lot, um, you know, for years. And so, um, the funny thing is like when I, I get a lot of stuff to mix, you know, these days that you do to everybody does because, you know, of the internet and how easy it is. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, like getting tracks from Annie was like so refreshing <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because they were all so familiar, you know, it's, it seemed very familiar. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, when you're in a band and you're recording, you know, and you're trying to capture this, it's mostly about the spirit, you know, especially with a band like that. And I know Annie knows that. And so there's growly, aggressive, you know, sections where the bass is just like, you know, the spirit is really what you hear more than the tone of it. Yeah. And, you know, and so when you're recording yourselves like that, you know, you end up with a couple puzzles to, to put together when you want to make things uh, sound right and, you know, are presentable um, as a end product. And so when, when we got together, I mean, we would sit in the studio, sometimes I'd mix by myself and then she would always come in and help me uh, sort of finish up, uh, you know, with, uh, with comments. Sometimes she'd just take the helm, you know, I go, you know, she just let her go. <laughs> she can sit in front of the computer and help too. Um, but, uh, you know, with a band like that, when I was mixing, I was thinking about, if someone was listening to it and closing their eyes, I'd want them to still feel like it was a, a trio, even though it's not, mm -hmm. you know, technically that, you know, there are layers of guitars and, uh, and things I would do things like, um, when a solo section came up, I'd pan the bass off to the left a little bit and the guitar off to the right to give you that feeling that the band was there. You could see where the players are and then it would quickly snap back, uh, you know, to where it was. But, um, that's a cool idea. Yeah, uh, so I, I've just like that. I, that reminds me of doing things like having a guitar that's you know living on one side of the mix during most of the song, and then sort of cut it to the middle for the solo. Yeah, and cut it back again, so it just sort of sounds like it's a solo. Yeah, and that's a great move. Like you know, most of the times those solos are replacing a vocal, and so you know it makes total sense to move a guitar solo into where the vocal was, in my opinion, ninety percent of the time. You know? Yeah, and sometimes you're tracking a band where the solo needs to happen during the take, as opposed to. I hate that part where you're where people are asking like, "Well, when the solo section, should we just sort of should I just strum chords through there and then we'll overdub yeah. a solo?" And that that totally can work, but um, it it inevitably makes the the energy and the magic of the tracking session just kind of evaporate a little bit in that moment. Whereas like a really heartfelt solo during the tracking would just inspire everybody. Yeah, I know. Those are the problems. Those are the things we deal with, you know. The challenges. It's like, yeah. You know, do you want that solo that to upset the whole take if it doesn't go right too, you know, you know, being cut live. Um uh, so so the Weekend Friends, is that a project that would have hit tape at all? Um did it stay in in the computer? That's it sounded like you guys were mixing from Pro Tools. Yeah, so well the first record um was done on tape and then moved into the computer uh for mixing. This second record um, was done in Pro Tools, and um, yeah, actually, we had Jay Maskus played on from Dinosaur Junior played on one of the tracks too. Is he an, another Boston um, cat? Yeah, he's a Boston cat. Uh, he's just know. outside of Boston um, in Western Mass, but uh, but yeah, I mean, he's I mean, Dinosaur Junior was a really popular local band back you know when I first got to town, That's you know, awesome. in the late eighties. Yeah, I totally uh, was a fan of Dinosaur Jr. I just guess I forgot that they were from Boston. 
See, yeah. everything was from Boston. The Lemonheads were coming out of there. Juliana Hatfield. Yeah. So many great, great artists. But yeah, so Jay sent this this track, you know, from his studio. He's a great engineer, by the way. Um, and uh, and sent it over. And he sent over probably, uh, I think it was maybe like, maybe it was six or eight takes of of a guitar track, basically through the whole song. He was just playing through the whole song. And I remember Annie just saying like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to do with this because <laughs> he was just playing through the whole song. And of course she's used to playing, the band was used to playing that song without another guitar. Um, Jay liked the band and was nice enough to do this, uh, offered to do this. And um, when I heard it, I just thought, Oh my God, it's plutonium. Like, yeah. you know, like, you, you know, you, you don't try to ride it around the vocals or anything. You throw them off to one side, like Jay Mascus is playing along with the band. And let him interpret it and let him go. And once we did that and sort of acclimated to the song sounding that way, um, yeah, it seemed like it always just seemed normal. So know? is that, uh, which song is that? Or is that, uh, I, I'm trying to remember how many you sent. Uh, that um, we've got in I don't know if I sent that one. Um, that song, I believe that song was Hate Mail. Okay. All right, cool. Well, uh, you can find it, I'm sure, just Rockstars, just, just uh Search for it on YouTube when you're there. Um, well, very cool. What I, I also remember hearing that Jay was um, n- notorious for uh, or famous for playing his guitar quite loudly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So maybe tell us the story about that. Like, what what sort of what does a loud rig like that look like? Um, how do you even record it in the studio? Well, I've seen Jay. Well, Jay recorded that rig out at his place, um, but I've seen Jay. I mean, many times and. Um, he loves fuzz pedals. He likes big muff pedals are, are, are one of his favorites. Um, you know, I, I think he might even like, and John Aniello would be the guy to talk to about this. Cause he's the guy that tracks, uh, with Jay, like he's Jay's right hand man, as far as recording goes. Oh, cool. Um, but, uh, but yeah, seeing, um, you know, Jay live, I mean, everything from like, uh, Fender, uh, basements, bandmasters, marshals. Like he, I've seen them stack things on top of each other. Look like they were about to fall over, you know? Awesome. How about miking stuff like that? I mean, I, I know uh, I should probably talk to John about that, but um, when you get in a giant loud rig, how do you like to m- mic it? Yeah, I go through different phases um, and different things. I mean, you know, for a while I was using um, kind of my go-to for for years is uh, was – was two mics uh, blended together and bust together through the same compressor. If I'm using a compressor, and I would use uh, an e, uh, an EV PL10, which looks like a little mini RE20. Okay. Um, with an SM57, and I sort of point them at each other like a V, almost well, not at each other, angled towards each other like a V, um, and position that like an arrow toward, you know, towards the cone or the, where the cone meets the paper of a, of the speaker. Fascinating. How did you arrive at that kind of setup? Uh, I was completely by accident. And actually I remember, uh, I was, I was miking a Roland jazz chorus, one of those like stereo combos. And, um, I had, I noticed that the speaker sounded different and I don't know if it was the circuit or the amplifier itself, but they sound very different from each other. And so um, one of them is a little more mid-rangey and one of them is a little more like softer in the mid-range. So I chose those two microphones because the EV has a little bit of a dip 
which I perceived, you know, those would work well on the, if I put them on the, each cone that had the opposite property of the microphone, to sort of even out the sound. And I did that and I thought, wow, well, this is really great. I can sort of dial in, you know, uh, there's a really cool EQ going on between these two mics. So I ended up during that session put it, when we went to another amplifier, putting them together and blending them. And, uh, and I kind of never stopped doing that. It's still one of my staple things that I do. Um, it's just, I'm EQing guitars less at the console and, um, sort of mixing the mics together to create the EQ. It's interesting. And I picture if you got two cardioid patterns that are sort of one slightly to the left, one slightly to the right, it's maybe creating like a, a, a wider cardioid, a little bit more open. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like you're getting, you know, you are getting a little bit more coverage as far as like when you're using one mic and you can really tell like, you know, if you're, if it's too close to the center of the cone and you're getting that, you're getting those sharp transients. And then, you know, sometimes it's, as you move it towards the cone, it's hard to find that sweet spot. But, you know, when you have two mics, you have the control of the individual properties of the EQ of those mics too. So, you know, sometimes rather than moving the mic, you can sort of just move the faders to blend them. And, yeah. uh, yeah, when yeah, I do multi mic, oh, sorry, I was gonna say when I do multi mics on the, I'll, I'll bring them on the console and have faders there. And it's really fun to just reach up and adjust the faders and you feel like you're sculpting the sound and tone. Yeah, totally. And committing to them together too, out of, you know, sharing a bus is also a big deal to me because, you know, a lot of the music I'm doing is very guitar heavy and, you know, I don't want, I don't want a million guitar tracks of the same sound, you know? Um, awesome. Well, um, the, I love hearing about these sessions. So let's, let's take a break for a sec and, uh, we'll come back in for the jam session and we'll dig deeper into more of the records you've done. And we're going to talk rock stars about the transatlantic plate reverb and find out more about creating an amazing plate reverb plugin. Um, so reminder, Rockstars, you can find links to what we're talking about here with Brian Charles in the show notes. Just click through, including the YouTube playlist. And when you're on YouTube, please make sure to remember to subscribe to Recording Studio Rockstars. Hit that notification bell so that you can uh, be notified of more stuff coming along. And drop a comment in, too. So the, the YouTube comments are one of the best ways for us to have a conversation about our amazing guests like Brian. And we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. Cheers. You've already invested in your studio speakers, headphones, and treatment of the room. And you're passionate about creating great music, but your mixes don't seem to translate to the rest of the world. The reason is that your speakers and headphones are not telling you the whole story. The frequency response of your studio has huge peaks and valleys all throughout the low end that are completely screwing up your perspective. You may be doing your best to hit the bullseye with your mix, but your room makes the target of a perfect mix impossible to find. Wouldn't it feel great if there was a simple tool that could fix all that for you and help you get your mixes right the first time? Introducing Sonarworks Reference 4, the affordable solution to correcting your speakers and headphones in your studio. Built for Windows and Mac, Sonarworks helps you position your speakers, correct your control room imperfections, and get a million dollar sound on a home studio budget. Get a 21-day free trial at sonarworks.com and start your journey toward the perfect mix. 
Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Other World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars. We're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Brian Charles joining us from Zippa Studio in... uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, we're going to talk more about making records and get into some cool plug-in design, too. You ready to jam? I am ready to rock. Sweet, man. Um, You know, another question I wanted to ask you about Weekend Friends on that record was the great drum sound. So it uh, it had this quality to it that really seemed to fit that style of music, Um, and I wondered if you could talk about what what that is. Uh, I would describe it as not being focused on a whole bunch of close mics, but having a really kind of a good room sound. And, you know, the, it's almost like the snare speaks more than the kick does and that kind of sound. Um, just a big, I mean, it was the nature of that music too. It was like slow groove, like, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but I wonder if you wanted to just talk about, uh, you know, for, for lack of a better term, I'm, I'm going to call it indie rock, but, but getting that kind of drum sound that doesn't feel like, um, you know, yet another drum plugin, <laughs> right? Drum emulator plugin, but feels like real drums that that uh, makes you think of Steve Albini and and um, you know just that that whole sound of the the nineties. Yeah, I mean, the Zippa room is really it's not a it's not a massive studio room. It's like it, but it has a long sort of it's almost like a hallway in the way that it's it's designed. Um, so it's long. It's longer than it is um, wide, and typically, like I know on the Weekend Friends uh, record, the the drums are set up um, at one end of the of of the room, so of the long side of the room. So mm-hmm. um, typically, facing down the length of the room, like the kick is yes. firing the length of the room. Yeah, and he's pretty much all the way back, like you know, as far as he can be. Um, to kind of maximize the length of the room there. But um, typically, we'll do uh, a pair of, you know, I'm not sure what Annie did on that. It was either a pair of RCAs I saw on one of them or some some of the songs she had one room mic and added one later. But, you know, we'll use typically a pair of Coles 4038s in the room about maybe 12 feet back uh, from the kit. 12 to 15, mm-hmm. um, or a pair of U47s, um, or, or ribbons, uh, you know, RCAs are, 
are popular in that room. And almost always, uh, we almost always put them through uh, the Chandler TG1 EMI oh, limiter. Man, the t- Chandler TG1 is such a great <laughs> yeah. limiter. Yeah, it's like why'd you, you have know, to bring that up? Now you just reminded me I gotta get one. <laughs> sorry, and sorry re- to gear talk rock stars. Uh, no, isn't that what we're here for? Yeah, uh, it is and it is. You know, it depends on who's talking. Uh, okay. But no, you know, right. the release time on that is just insane. You know, the release time of one or two in that's in the zipper room with a drummer and like a pair of mics is and they don't even have to be matched mics. It's just it's a cool sound. And yeah. Um, you know, Wade. Uh, Wade from Chandler is just an amazing gear designer. Um, I remember reading a quote. I forget who said it, but someone said, like, if if designing gear was an Olympic sport, Wade Gokey would be uh, tested for steroids. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, the TG1, I've used that on drums in the past, but I also, it was like a secret weapon for vocals on a record I did where we were doing kind of a triple compression and it was the final thing and it just seemed to take those vocals and make them sit right up front no matter what what happened yeah it's very cool it's i mean it's beatly you know you listen to songs like girl where john lennon is you know breathing in like that and it just um it's got such a cool mood to it you know whether you're using it you know extreme or even just in a subtle way uh, let's talk about putting a pair of coals out as rim mics. Um, so those are both figure eight ribbons, as all pretty much all ribbons are. And they also have a huge proximity effect. I guess you get far enough away, and, and it's not proximity anymore, but it will pick up a lot of low end, right? You, you, those those yeah. mics will, will like hear the final teeny bit of sustain in, in the, the bass or the toms or whatever. Yeah, Coles 4038s have massive magnets in them so they are i mean if you put you've probably done it i mean i remember when i was younger interning in a studio and i would take if the coals got too close together and they were on two stands they would literally smack together You're right and you'd get, have to pry them apart you know get sucked in yeah and they make an awful sound and it, you know it's you don't want to get caught with you know the the 4038 smacking together if you're an intern. <laughs> um, um, but they have great punch to them. You know, the, the yeah. thing about those mics are in a room, when you're using them in a room in front of a drum kit is, you hear the close sound, the punch, but you also hear this other ambience at the same time. They almost defy like physics or logic. Yeah, they, they have this amazing ability to pick up the detail in, in drums and percussion stuff too. Um, and then can be really smooth, and they really fill out the low end air, yeah, in the drum sound. But um, picturing this long room, and when where would you place these two mics? Would they be near each other, like a stereo pair of mics, um, coincident, you know, in the back of the room, or would they be spaced out and closer to the wall? And then I'm thinking, you know, if they are closer to the wall, because of the figure eight pattern. Maybe like that's not a problem because they're rejecting the reflection off the wall anyway. Yeah, they're closer to the walls. Um, we, you know, they're spaced and they're each next to the walls. And you're exactly right about that. Although the amount that they're being compressed like heavily through the TG1, we're kind of inviting all of those reflections into the into mm-hmm. those microphones. Um, but you know, you're mixing them in with the with the dry signals as well. So you do have you know, there's control over it. Um, but that's kind of secret weaponry 
to me, you know, those, the combination of those microphones and, and the Chandler TG one. Um, what are some things that you would do with the mics that are closer to the kit? Um, you know, yeah, I try not to get into patterns, um, with things, but if I'm doing a, a rock record, uh, my typical setup would be, I mean, I use 57s on snare top. Sometimes I use, uh, 81 a condenser on the bottom. Sometimes I'll, I'll use another 57 on the bottom. Um, I do like 421s on toms. I know some people hate them, um, but I've used those. I've used Josephson's on toms. Uh, yeah, the tons. Josephson's are amazing. Yeah, but you get a lot of cymbal leakage into those mics as well, but they sound, the cymbals actually sound good in those mics. <laughs> right. It's, <laughs> it's not a problem. It doesn't um, have the, the off-axis coloration that other mics do. Yeah, and 414s too, I'll use those on toms as well. And sometimes in figure eight um, and use them as my kind of my cymbal sound as well. And then do a mono overhead, you know, uh, to help uh, cool. sort of fill in that. Um, uh, you, let's back up for a sec. So you talked about the underside mic of the snare um, and that's the SM81, which is a mic that's been around for a long time. I used to have one. That's another one that magically disappeared from the studio. Oh, no. Point. Someone knows <laughs> what they're doing over there, taking yep. those mics from you. But but I wanted to ask you, like, what do you feel, what sort of sound do you feel like you're looking for when you're choosing a mic for the bottom of the snare and you're you're bringing it in? and Or like, what are some signs when you bring a mic in as a bottom snare mic where you're like, yeah, that's not what I'm, that's not going to work. That's not helping. You know, I'll, it usually comes down to the fact that I'm, I'm working with a lot of rock bands and rock drummers. There's a lot of open hi-hat um, on, on those types of recordings. And I want some options for getting some brightness into that snare drum, um, without having to pull a sample in. And, you know, at least that's my goal at first, usually. And, um, you know, sometimes an 81 is too bright and you, you find that you're getting just a little bit too much of the of the um, the transient into that microphone because it's such a fat it's a faster microphone mm -hmm. than than the top mic. It's a small uh, diaphragm condenser, Rockstar. Yes, small diaphragm condenser and uh, and and really durable, which is one of the reasons it ends up on the on that close to a, a drum. Yeah. Um, but you know, I also find that if you use two of the same mics, you know, whatever you're 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 using on the top. And the bottom, you get less of that phasey sort of thing. Um, you know, if you're taking a bigger picture of the drums, if it's a slower song with like a big, um, like a larger, like a baggy snare sound or something. Mm -hmm. um, Again, that boom, 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 yeah. boom, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and... Um, so you're saying in that case, you might want to put a 57 on top and a 57 on the bottom because they're going to work together. Yeah, when you have a big sandy snare sound like that, the sound from the top and the bottom, yeah, they're different, but like the whole drum is kind of just doing more. And um, I don't know, I find that like sometimes by using the same mics, you get less of that phasey weirdness. Um, have you ever done the, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the, the, the Rick Rubin idea of like a miking up a whole drum kit with just 57s? No, um, and I've read about it, and believe me, I'm curious about it. I, I, I bet it's. I haven't tried it because I, I bet it would just sound fine, <laughs> you know. And then, um, and then, what happens to all those decades of trying so hard to make to get great drum sounds? The funny thing is, when I was like 
you know, I, I did have some part-time jobs and things when I was younger. And I, one of them was working at Jack's drum shop on Boylston street in Boston. And, um, I learned how to tech drums and put drums together and take them apart. And, you know, that skill has been, has kept me busy. You know, I'm obsessed with snare drums. I have a large collection of snare drums. Um, I'm into tuning and tweaking and messing up drums to get certain sounds. And, um, that's most of getting a drum sound for me is, is getting the drums to sound the way I want them without it before I even put a mic on them. Yeah, indeed. Um, all right. So give the rock stars a tip. If they're like, I should go buy my first snare for my studio. What would you suggest to somebody? I have two suggestions. Um, actually, no, I'm going to give you one suggestion. I would say find a used Ludwig Acrylite snare drum. Dig it. Um, you can find those for around a hundred bucks and, um, they're on more records than you can imagine. Great I think that's a drum. great tip. Yeah. They're, and they're sort of, um, they're sort of a light metal shell, right? Isn't it a aluminum yeah. or something? Yeah. It, it's, um, it's a composite and you know, they sold those drums with, uh, I think they came out with the Vista light sets, you know, the clear Ludwig oh, yeah. sets. Those are great. Yeah. As an option, if you didn't want the clear snare drum, you know, which those sound cool too, but they have a very funky kind of low end to them. You know, um, isn't it funny how good Vistalite shells and a drum kit sounds? People are shocked. I, I'm personally not shocked about it because it makes sense to me because the bearing edges on those things are like razors. You know, they're they're perfectly mm. round and they have a nice sharp bearing edge on them. And so that's why new like newer modern drums sound great. It's not so much the wood as it is the construction. And, you know, you when wooden drums get old and they warp and they're not quite round anymore, or the hoop is bent, you you know, you've been there wrestling with a, with a rack tom trying to get it to sound right. I'm sure. And many people have, and a lot of times it's because the drum is out of round. Um, Interesting. So it's really, it has a lot to do with just precision construction and then therefore the drum functions the way it's supposed to. Yeah. And that acrylic has quite uh, you get a lot of attack and you also, they also has a lot of low end. Yeah. To it. Yeah. I've had huge kick low end, um, doing a, um, Vista light kick drum before. Yeah. Well, there's a reason John Bonham liked him. <laughs> there yeah. you go. I, yeah. I forgot that that was a, a drum kit of choice for him. Yeah. Awesome. So, and then rock stars, the Vista lights are the clear drums from what the seventies. Yeah. From the seventies. And yeah. did they still make Vista lights today? They reissued them, which made the price of the older ones go up like oh. severely, which I'm not too happy about. But the good thing is you can buy hardware now to to replace, uh, to fix up the older kits a lot easier. Well, it's all right. You can redirect all your funds to the Collins 212Y mic pre instead. <laughs> oh, geez. What did I do? <laughs> um, okay, cool, man. So um, let's talk a little bit more about Sheila Devine and recording vocals. So um, one of the songs, uh, I think it was Melancholy Mass, the vocals have this really cool, almost like Bono quality to the vocals. And I wondered if you would talk about things like EQ, compression, and also just having the right kind of effects in there. Because it's it's a great combination of, there's definitely effects on the voice, but they but they're, they don't stand out as apart from the voice. They don't, you're not like, oh, listen to this, there's a kooky delay on there or something. It's just blended in and it creates the whole vibe. Right. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like I've been recording Aaron for so many years, uh, that, um, I kind of always do the same thing. 
Um, and I mean, typically for me, I'm not even going to say typically, I always track vocals flat. I never EQ them uh, to tape because I've learned my lesson. Uh, when a singer comes in and they sing it that day, they might come back a week later and want to drop in on a line here or there. Oh, yeah. So I, I track them flat. I use, you know, I pretty much, I love using, uh, you know, my, my limiters and they all have easy to read controls. Most of them are click stop. So I can chart the settings in the comments box next to the vocal really easily. Um, on Aaron, I used a Skibby Electronics uh, Flickinger. Bill. Yeah, Bill Skibby, and, um, which I love. I mean, a, a huge fan of, of that. And that's kind of my go-to vocal pre for him. And I run that into an old LA-2A. And, you know, the, the gain on the mic pre is about 35, 36. And on the LA-2, it's 30 and 50 on the knobs, on the input and gain reduction, respectively. I just, Very cool. Yeah. How, how much can a needle move on that LA-2A and still sound awesome? You know, you start to lose some low end past minus four, minus five on those, I, I find. Um that being said, it's still a really cool sound. Um, you mean the low end that you were going to low cut anyway? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's nice, like I said, like I hate to use the word silk again, but a lot of the tube gear I like, I like it because it adds that thing I can't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to an LA-2A next to an 1176, the LA-2A has this like really pretty silky top end to it. And I like what it does to a U47, like when I'm using you know, a nice, a chunky U47, mm -hmm. um, it just adds that fairy dust on top. And oh, um, the, oh, the elusive fairy dust. I feel yeah. like 1176s um, are going to give me like a harder, more aggressive mid-range. Exactly. It gives you that, that presence and um, yeah, and that it's a little bit more aggressive sounding. Um, so if you want something to bite, I might, I might, go for the 1176 and if I want it to um, not hurt me when I turn it up loud I might <laughs> use the, uh, the LA-2A. Yeah and so like for for Aaron you know it's a U47 from the 50s uh, that, that I that I use a lot and um, and and that will uh, that'll hit that's hitting the the signal chain we just talked about and once it's once it's in there, um, I'll typically EQ it. And I think with him, like I don't know, I'll open up like an SSL channel or something. Um, and uh, in Pro you Tools, know, you mean? In Pro Tools, yeah. And which and, one do you like to use? Do you have one that you tend to go? You know, to? I I still use the Waves one, and I know everyone's like, oh, things have gotten so much better. You got to check out the you know the UAD one or this that. You know, it's I can almost use anything and and. Uh, if it's a vocal and you have a singer like Aaron, it's not hard. You know, I'm, right. I'm usually using a shelf up top and, you know, anywhere from like five or six K up. And boosting um, a little bit. Boosting yeah. A little boosting top. a little bit of that, figuring out if I want some aggression in the mid range or if I need to like tame it with a C4 or something. Um, you know, but yeah, I'll usually go SSL channel into like a CLA 2A. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll put a vocal rider uh, at the top of the channel, you know, that waves vocal rider. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny, your voice, as you said that on this podcast, your voice will be delivered by a vocal rider. Cause that's what, I, that's what <laughs> I discovered as a great, um, 
a great way to just kind of keep the voice right up front in the podcast for both of us talking. Oh, um, that's ha- great. Talk about how you use Vocal Writer. I, I, I still find it a mysterious plugin for like, how, how does this thing work? On a vocal, I'll put it up and I'll, I'll select the preset uh, Smooth Ride and then adjust that one. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll change it from the slow to fast, but I just drag that slider over, you know, the average, uh, you know, you have to select sort of the average range that you want. Mm-hmm. I'll drag that slider over so that I almost think about it like I'm hitting an LA-2A so that I see a little bit going above it and a little bit going below it, you know, about the same amount. And uh, and the plugin just sees the vocal itself and tries to come up with a sort of average level for it. Um, as or does it? It does. As I'm remembering, it doesn't like have a side chain input where you, where the rest of the music. You can do a side it. chain. That, that's yeah, you, what I thought. Yeah, you can do that. I haven't used that. Uh, I haven't used that feature on it to be honest with you. I I usually put it up just to help out a little bit, and then I'll put a limiter plugin, a compressor plugin after it. Mm-hmm. Just you know, kind of get me to a place that things are sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always EQ before going into the compressor with a vocal. Um, I, I just guess, find it, yeah. Oh, sorry. I guess the, uh, the side chain thing, I guess the concept of that that I was trying to understand is this idea that if the song's loud, it's going to maybe ride up the vocal for you. And if the song gets quieter, it'll bring the vocal back. But again, I haven't tried it either, so I'm not sure if that's exactly what it does. Cool concept, though. Yeah, it's a very cool concept. You know, the whole look-ahead technology sort of like changed a lot, you know, um, of the way, that, how functional these things are. Are there, um, I actually just got the um, the Bass Rider one too, so I'm sort of excited to start trying that in the studio and see what it does. Uh, yeah. may, maybe let's talk about that for a sec. Let's talk about bass. One of the most frustrating things is when you're trying to mix this music and, and you're, and your challenge is that the bass is loud here, but it's quiet here on certain notes and stuff like that. It can be so frustrating um, because you're just trying to find this consistent bottom for your for your mix. Do you run into that sort of thing? Do you have any tips for getting the low end right, um, either at the recording stage and or as you hit mix? I have a couple things that I always lean on. I always find myself leaning on. Um, one of them is, well, if I'm inheriting something like a project to mix and, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's a, there's a, if it was, rec- if I recorded it, it's a lot different. Uh, for me, it's a lot easier, but you know, you inherit things to mix. Sometimes you get them in the base, always a challenge usually. And one of the, I have, a, there's a technique that I picked up. I'm trying to think who I picked it up from, but, um, you know, think about that in a second, but I refer to it as simplifying the bass, mm-hmm. where I'll take the bass and I'll duplicate it. And I mean, I first started doing this on the console, and it's easier for me to describe if I describe it that way. Sure. But say I took the bass track, duplicated it, brought it up on two channels of the console, flipped the phase on one of them, leveled those two faders till the sound completely disappears. Right, so now my bass has been split out to two channels. It's duplicated. Mm-hmm. Flip the phase on one of them, level match it, so it disappears. Then I engage the EQ on one of those channels, and I cut a low frequency, maybe around a hundred, and I and I mess with the Q. And what happens is it only allows that because I'm re- I'm cutting that frequency. Mm-hmm. That's the frequency that's uh, different between the two sounds, and so. Uh, that's 
though you can really hone in on that frequency being the only frequency in the bass. And so sometimes I'll rebuild the bass frequencies using that method because it simplifies it to something so dumb and singular that uh, I can get a bass sitting into a mix. Okay, a so let me, let me say that back to you to make sure I'm getting it. So you've got the original bass on one channel or fader, and then you've got an exact duplicate of it on a second channel or fader, such that if you flip the phase on the second one, they cancel each other out because they're both in mono. Yeah. Uh, but then on the on the flipped version, you notch filter out a certain frequency, and so it's as if that one's not getting phase canceled anymore, and now it speaks through and adds itself to the original bass. Exactly. You got it exactly. Cool. And then you yeah. can just kind of scoot that one around to to um, find a certain frequency you like. So this is a way to sort of like bring out a little bit more of that area of the bass tone. Yeah, I'll actually use that as the bass tone. I mean, I'll rebuild the bass. I call it simplifying the bass. So, you know, a lot of times I'm dealing with, you know, a bass that wasn't contoured, it wasn't shelved, it maybe was cut, like tracked with a weird microphone, like a Beta 52 or like, you know, it's just something that I don't usually deal with. Yeah. And there's a lot of a lot of uh, information going on. So by simplifying it that way, I can rebuild the bass. I mean, you could cut a bunch of frequencies and kind of get back to where it was, but it's a really interesting way of like, of simplifying that frequency so that yeah you're simplifying it down to that 100 hertz zone where yeah where you the bass is really going to speak in your mix yeah and you can even just pull in like you know the really sub low bottom as well without having all the residual you know frequencies getting freaked out now would you compress that version too so that that 100 hertz is staying at a pretty consistent level almost always yeah Oh, cool, yeah. man. This is exciting, yeah. dude. What a great tip. Rockstars, <laughs> you were here when, when we got this tip. We're going to have to try that one out. Um, another thing another um, another thing that I did for years, I mean, before before Pro Tools, before computer recording, was I kept a chart of, uh, of frequencies uh, and how they matched up to, to, to notes and a scale. And, you know, being a musician, uh, it's, it's easy for me to 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 use that to figure out why the the bass isn't sitting right it's like every time the bass is, goes to you know the the a it, yeah. uh, i'm losing that note or yeah. you know and so you just look and you and you, you know you look at the frequency chart and you see where that is and uh, you can literally dip that frequency um, these days you can use a c4 or a c6 multiband limiter to really really make it nice uh, you know and controlled um, but yeah, so that's the other that's the other thing I'm leaning on even now. So that's I, I guess there's the term wolf tone in a bass, which I think refers to upright bass, where um, well, I guess it refers to any bass, which is just like a particular note that overspeaks. Um, but then there's the opposite. There's like the bass, like you said, where you go to the A and all of a sudden there's just no low end. The instrument just like drops drops away, you know. Um, and and a lot of times when I would hear those. I remember thinking like, oh, I should do something. And then I'm like, oh, but maybe I shouldn't because maybe I'm just not hearing it in the room right now and, and that sort of thing. So it becomes a struggle. Are there any other tools that you use to know that 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 bass is actually missing or too loud at that one spot and then you're not just being fooled by the speakers? Um, yeah, I mean, well, typically, I mean, I'm in a place where I'm really used to the way it sounds, so that's not an issue for me. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I kind of, if I'm not hearing it, I know I'm not hearing it. I mean, if I, if I go somewhere else and I do, I don't just work at Zippa. Um, I was down at Blackbird last year doing some tracking. Oh, cool. And, um, you know, those rooms sound great there. I was in the A room and, um, you know, it's, it's as acclimated as I felt in there. Cause it's very well put together. Um, yeah, there were still some, some things where I might look at maybe a modern plugin, you know, like fab filter or, um, or neutron isotope neutron, just to see what was going on, uh, and have a visual representation of, of what the bass was doing. Yeah, that's cool. I've heard people describe isotope neutron as being a useful tool for that. So I think it's designed to sort of make all these automated mix moves for you. But a lot of times people talk about, well, I don't really want it to make the move for me, but I love that it shows me where that move might exist. Yeah, I use that as a visual aid more than I use it for uh, for processing. Um, I'll use the EQ on it and and the multiband limiting on it, but um, it's it's really cool that you can see the music. I mean, so there's no lag, you know, it's like very accurate. So um, you, I don't use it myself yet, but you see the music sort of, you see that visualization in real time as the song's playing by? Yeah. Uh, and then I don't know how they do it, but there's a zero latency button on there too, because there's a lot of processing happening. And so they're managing, they're managing the, the delay in samples. Uh, so if you have it on a mix bus, like a mix master bus um, or a drum bus, more importantly, mm-hmm. and you want to get rid of the delay but not use your delay compensation. Um, it seems to it seems to do it within the plugin, which is pretty handy. Dig it, awesome man. Um, well, cool. Well, great tips, man. Awesome stuff. Let's jump into the uh, the white elephant in the room. No, the big the big topic of the day. <laughs> Let's. Uh, that sounds weird. Why would you jumping into a white elephant? Just sounds really. I don't know. You can't even visualize that. <laughs> so psychedelic. <laughs> um, Let's talk about your amazing uh, new plugins, Trans- Transatlantic Plate Reverb. So Mark Rubel sent me an email a while back, and he's like, man, you got to check this out and introduce me to you. And, uh, and I listened to it, and I was like, wow, this sounds fantastic. So, um, And then we started our conversation, and here we are. Tell us about starting up a plugin company, and, and the, um, or maybe tell us about the Plate Reverb first, and then we'll talk about you know, what it means to have the vision for creating your own plugins. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, so the transatlantic plate reverb is sort of, it was born from, uh, my workflow changing. Um, you know, I, I wanted my plate in the box and, you know, more often as I became more, more often than not, I was mixing in the box. Right. What I'm trying to say. And, um, you know, I was still using a series of hardware inserts. And, you know, when I had to do a recall, the plate reverb was the hardest thing to get back to where I where I had it set, because, you know, it's it's literally a motor with a remote. And, you know, there's not much visual information there other than a a blip, you know, telling you. And and for me, I have a plate upstairs. Uh, I never hooked up the motor with the remote, so it's literally me jumping up out of a chair, running up into a closet, <laughs> yeah, and, and then pulling out my phone and trying to interpret the photo of the little you know reverb level arm. Yeah, man. I mean, so you know, that's one of the hardest things uh, to recreate. And you know, as far as plugins go, like reverb plugins go, like I didn't find one 
that replaced my plates. Um, awesome. So I would, I got really, this is a few years ago, I really got into impulse response, uh, um, creating the, you know, impulses, trying different things, different levels, different tones. Um, actually had a Yuri 809, uh, you know, big main speaker that I was repairing for a friend of mine. I was reconing it and, um, and, uh, actually ended up trading him a spare that I had. And so I ended up with this odd 809 and I, I would, um, I had it in the back of my car and I went to a parking garage, like underground, uh, in, in one of the, the shopping places around here. And I was on the very bottom floor and I shut the door of the car and it was this incredible lofty sound. And I looked at the speaker in the back of my car and I said, oh, you know what? I should come back here <laughs> and figure <laughs> out how to make an impulse of this garage um, from my car. And I did. And I actually did it like two days later. That's great. Uh, That's so much more advanced than what I would have done. I would have been like, I should come back here and just play all my tracks through this garage and re-record <laughs> and, and just kill people with 12 hours of you know crazy music at full blast. Make sure the band gets the itinerary. We're meeting on the yeah the fourth lower level of the garage for recording today. Sub uh, sub sub basement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, from the basement. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, I had a power inverter and a laptop and a couple microphones and and um, and I made a really cool impulse of this space, and um, I really got into experimenting with trying to get a good plate. Uh, a series of plate impulses, and the the problems I was running into um, were that well CPU power for one, which we can talk about. I know you've experienced, um, but the the other one was that you know most of these most commonly like historically with these types of impulse response reverbs. You you know you take the longest impulse, and you would you know they would they would take like a a fade algorithm and basically institute that across the longest algorithm, or the longest impulse, to get different times, different reverb times. Mm -hmm. So the problem with that is, and you know because you have a plate, um, how a plate works is, you know you the sound is vibrating this plate, and these transducers that are spaced are picking up this plate basically vibrating and wobbling around and it goes from slower vibrations to faster vibrations as it's, as it becomes still, you know, like when you drop a, right. a quarter on the ground and it's, and it's, uh, and it's, or you spin a quarter on the table and you watch it slow down as it starts to, to level itself out, the vibrations are getting very fast. Until oh, that's it stops. awesome. Great analogy. And so that happens on a plate reverb and that's what makes your stereo image go from where it is to even wider as as the decay happens and that happens throughout the range of 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 the decay so when you're instituting a fade on one long impulse you're getting rid of all of that incredible stuff that makes plates amazing in my opinion so uh what i my challenge was to find a way to get from the two plates that i wanted in, in to have in the box um, was to make 24 independent impulses that were pristine, first of all, mm -hmm. um, that could run in a single plug-in. Uh, the main 
problem that I had, um, besides processing power, was there's a process in this technology. You know, you're familiar with convolution, but there's also deconvolution. So you have to basically um, deconstruct, reverse engineer from your sampling, uh, from the way that, from your sampling regime. You have to take that and 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 reverse it in a in a process that's called deconvolution. And there are some out of the box um, sort of products and soft pieces of software that help you do this. The problem is um, they're very simple in the way that they work and they're designed to do things like correct phase, phase shift mm -hmm. and do all these things that aren't inherent in a plate. Like I want the phase shift. When, just, when sound hits a plate and when it's picked up by those transducers, it doesn't pick up the sound exactly at the same time. Like they're on two separate sheets of an eight foot piece of metal. Yeah. One side is always going to get hit first and one side is always going to end last. Mm -hmm. And so when you try to correct that, as a lot of manufacturers have done in the past, um, you correct that phase, you ruin, you ruin the sound. Right. It takes out some of the magic. I, this stuff is already sounding so uh, fascinatingly complex. I'm, I'm imagining that like during your lunch breaks, you head over to the MIT campus and go, you know, <laughs> eat, in, eat in the lunchroom there to chat up the, the, the you know, super genius students or something. <laughs> I've interviewed a lot of people. I mean, believe me, I'm not a coder. I'm I'm an I'm an engineer. I, I dabble in electrical engineering. Like I'm brave enough to work on my own gear, but I get shocked too. So that'll let you know how you yeah. know what my ability level is. Um, yeah, and then also you brought up Isotope. So Rockstar's Isotope is right there in Cambridge, right? That's right. Yeah, a great company. And yet right another here. reason of like, Lidge, why did you move away from Boston? I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, come back cool. anytime. I love Nashville. Nashville has taught me so much about music and musicianship and just, you know, there's a lot of great people down here too. Oh, and the players, I mean, it's funny, like so many of my, like I have a handful of clients that are in Nashville and, and I have some that are up here. There are a lot of singer songwriters nowadays, you know, great singers that write songs that don't have a band. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'll go down to Nashville and hire in the band and, you know, it sounds expensive at first to hire everybody in, but we can track an entire record in two days Yeah, in Nashville, you know? Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's well worth doing. It, making a record and hiring a band in Nashville is, is akin to probably like shooting a movie in, in LA and just hiring a massive crew, but then you get this incredible amount of work done in a day or two. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And it's, it's, uh, you have to kind of communicate that to to the artists, it's like, well, it, it is actually cost effective for two of us to fly to Nashville to do this, you know? So, so are one mic, no headphone sessions. <laughs> yeah, more of that. Yeah, um, more of that. Cool, man. All right, well, so we digress. So um, you you started doing these uh, impulse responses, and I don't know if you had a chance to listen to my interview with um, Nikolai Georgiev. I'm I did still, actually. Still trying to pronounce his name. I know. Right, I can't. I can't do it either. He yeah. was. He was so yeah. awesome telling this stuff, and and I, it's this really exciting new, uh, just whole stuff to think about hearing you guys talk about this. But what were some of the challenges that you had to run into um, with actually just? Uh, well, just tell us about more challenges because you're already talking about it. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, right now where we're at is, you know, we're on certain systems, it's trying to make it work on everybody's system. I mean, that's a whole, 
that's a whole nother thing that I guess any software company is going to have, have those that's yeah. just part of the a part of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and right now we're working really hard on um, lowering the CPU usage across, or the, it's not the CPU as much as it is like the overall DSP energy that it takes to do what we're doing. Because mm-hmm. um, the CPU usage isn't actually that high, but different systems and different um, DAWs and different computers manage memory and RAM and ROM in different ways. So like an HDX rig manages um, playback buffering and uh, and multi-threading in a much different way than a native logic system does. Yeah. So trying to make the plugin work for everybody um, uniformly is something that we're we're working really hard on right now. And um, we should have an update out actually in the next couple of weeks, um, which will have some some uh, some nice features built in uh, uh, to its functionality to make it across the board more friendly for more users. Um, That's cool. As well as a couple of suggestions from like Mark Rubel, who <laughs> he was like, Brian, why doesn't the mix knob go up to 100%? You know, because <laughs> why is it at 50%? Why does everybody make the mix knob 50%? And you know what? He's right. And um, so maybe this will be the, the Mark Rubel signature edition uh, with the mix knob at 100%. Yeah, um, will he put an there. MR and fancy script somewhere on there? Probably, you know, whatever he wants, pretty much. He's <laughs> kind of the greatest guy around. So yeah, Mark's know. awesome. Um, but you know, hearing you talk about kind of trying to create something like that, you know, here you are, you you are able to create the plugin itself to uh, be very specific. You're able to tackle a very very specific problem and sort it out and come up with a solution, but then. You know, having done that, in order to deliver that to everybody, all of a sudden you have to solve everybody's problems everywhere with every combination, and it's kind of like that difference in a way between, you know, if you were a cell phone designer and you wanted to make Android phones or software for Android phones, every phone is different, and that's one of the reasons why I never found very good um, what I thought were very good uh, audio and recording apps on Android phones, but the ones on Apple are fantastic because. If you design an app for an Apple iPhone, it's like it's one phone you got that it's got to work on, or maybe a couple of models, and that's it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is you. You hit it right on the head. It's like there's so many variables out there that you know we're finding even after going through a beta testing process, which we had a very, I mean, we had a really great team of beta testers. Um, you know, really great engineers from all over the world were helping us with this, and yet you release it into the world and of course you, you you uncover all of these things that you didn't catch in beta and i think it's just the nature of uh of the of this type of business um but uh you know we're determined yeah. to to get it right we have other plugins in development right now and awesome. uh um really excited about it so well, well so tell us more about describe transatlantic plate reverb you know what what should we expect if we go try out this plugin and and can we try it out yeah, um, actually, it's free. For We have a seven-day trial. It's free. You can go to uh, raresignals.com and click on Try, and, uh, and you'll, get a, you'll get the full working version, no limitations, for seven days. That's perfect. I and, mean, it didn't, didn't God make, like, the heavens and earth and everything in, in that much time? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, we did. Uh, no. <laughs> um, actually, we just made reverb. Um, it's God's reverb, yes. Uh, but, yeah, it's... it's um, 
Uh, where were we? We were talking about talking about transatlantic play reverb. You were describe well, so there's the uh, seven day trial. You can check out Rockstars, but to describe the plugin to us. So I, th- I know you guys have like a couple of different plate versions. Yes. There, right? Yeah. So I mean, we didn't want to advertise. You know, you drop the names of advertising because um, we don't have anything worked out with uh, with the you know with the people that made the original plates or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but we can describe what those plates might have weighed and looked like. Yes, and they were heavy <laughs> plates, and one of them are you know there are two settings on on this, and it's a um, a European setting and a U- U.S. setting. Okay. The European setting is a very famous plate. I mean, I, we can say it. We're engineers. It's an EMT plate. Um, this p- particular plate um, resided at Bearsville Studios, um, which so, is up in New York, right? Woodstock, New York. Yeah, yeah. and you know, records from the band. And uh, Todd Rundgren, uh, Jeff Buckley's Grace album. Wow. I mean, some really great reverb, you know, uh, on that record. Um, and uh, Andy Wallace, actually, uh, I saw an interview with him where he he printed the plate from Bearsville for the Jeff Buckley record because he wanted it, you know, wherever he was going to mix the record, he wanted it. Yeah. And um, so we have that plate. We used that plate. Um for uh for the uh for the emt for the uh european setting Mm -hmm. the u.s setting is um my beloved uh audicon plate that was made in nashville in 1971 that i have in my studio and it is just the most magical sounding piece of metal and electronics I've babied it over the years. It's, you know, the amplifier um, and the tuning of the plate. Um, I'm just crazy about keeping the thing perfect. That's awesome, man. I um, I also have a plate in my studio. It's an echo plate, too, from the 70s. Um, and it sounds really cool, but I don't even know how to open it to get it. <laughs> so it's just, you know, as, however it works, that's how it's working, you know? Well, maybe if I ever get down there at some point, I can show you how to tune your plate. Oh, cool. That'd be awesome. That'd be yeah. awesome. Um, well, so uh, what are some other knobs that we would expect to see on the plugin? Yeah, so um, I wanted to keep the interface really simple, uh, you know, because... Really, uh, you should just be able to start using it, you know, right away um, is how I felt about it. But you can dig a little bit deeper. I mean, the way that I set the flow up of controls and that we did, because it's me and 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 my team here in Boston, Mm -hmm. um, was basically the way that I found that using the plates in in the analog world was working uh, well for me. So the the low cut is pre uh, the, the reverb algorithm and the high cut is post. Uh, and so that's one thing, um, you know, minimizing the low frequencies that are hitting the plate, um, is something that I found was like really important when I was using the plate in the studio, the actual plate. Mm -hmm. And so we built that same type of signal flow into the plugin. That's great. Cause I, I find myself having to set that up manually when I'm trying to create a a plate, you know, send and return. Yeah, you mean like in the box when you're well, doing like, it? Well, so like, so for example, yeah. if I was feeding a signal to my actual plate in the studio, I would put an EQ, Some I might need to put an EQ on a send before exactly. it left Pro Tools I to see cut what you some mean. of the lows out. Yeah, exactly. I was doing the same type of thing. And so that's built into this plate. Um, also, the link button, which I shouldn't call it a link, 
because I think that's one thing that's a little confusing uh, to some people. But, um, you know, there's there's a trick that the Abbey Road engineers used to do. And I read about this from uh, uh, there was a Jeff Emmerich interview. I believe it was in Sound on Sound magazine and it was in like the late 80s, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they would literally uh, um, high and low pass together, like simultaneously to focus in on a vocal sound uh, with their plates to kind of control them. And I think they would do it with the chambers as well. And uh, so the, the link on our transatlantic plate reverb is designed to help you do that. And so you, you flip that in and they don't move in tandem. They move in mirror image of each other. So if you bring up, if you to cut more low end, it, it cuts more high end simultaneously. High end. And the way that those frequencies are stacked, I mean, I kept the, we kept the interface simple, but the scale of those is designed to work. You'll see if you use it, you can really focus in on a vocal or a guitar sound. Oh, so um, cool. So you, so it's like you're, coloring the reverb to be a better match for whatever instrument you're using on it. Yeah. And I invite people to really mess with those because they're kind of amazing tools uh, to really, especially on the shorter settings to creating like really like sneaky ambience that you don't necessarily hear in a track, mm -hmm. but you take it away and you go, Oh wow. It was now, doing. More. Now what I was asking you about um, the, the sort of Bono sound on melancholy mass, Sheila divine. All right. Would you have used that at all for that vocal sound? Yeah. So this was on that sound. Um, actually, the funny thing is that mix that was released was the rough mix from the, the night after after uh, tracking the vocals. Nice. And, it, and Aaron just released it because the election was coming up and, you know, uh, it, the time just seemed like right. And so mm -hmm. he released it and, um, you know, it'll probably get remixed when the record's done because we're doing a full album right now. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, on 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 Aaron's vocal, I I believe I had um, uh, a long reverb. I mean, yeah, I had a long delay rather, like a quarter note delay, as well as the transatlantic um, set pretty long. Um, and I would turn the delay. I kept I kept the long delay in in the verses, but I just brought the send down mm -hmm. uh, what I was sending off to it. Um, yeah, but I believe it was just an H delay, the Waves H delay and the transatlantic plate reverb. Cool. On, on his yeah. Well, that segues to um, next question I want to ask about the reverb. Uh, maybe you can just describe some of the ways that we can use transatlantic plate reverb in our productions or mixing. Um, and what are some good examples of long and short reverb uses? Yeah, so... Uh, well, th this brings me to um, the pre-delay control on on the on the transatlantic, and it's it's designed to be um, not a, a delay that has any sort of coloration to it. It's a full frequency delay that's literally delaying the signal at the very top of the signal chain. So, um, using that, uh, you can use shorter decay times with the pre-delay uh, to create. Uh, to create space. And I would encourage people that maybe aren't too into reverb on vocals, because I know there are some people that just aren't. Uh, right. um, actually, uh, I was talking with Chad Blake, uh, who he's notoriously not a reverb guy, which I don't think he likes that rap that he gets. Um, right. But um, 
uh, he commented to, to me that he really liked the way that the delay on this on this plugin sounded. And um, part of what I think you know he was hearing, at least I I think, is that um, you'll notice that there's a little bit of a gain difference between uh, this plugin and some of the other plugins around, and that's because the amplifiers in these plates were maxed, and I wanted to um, I wanted to capture the harmonic elements of the amplifiers of these plate reverbs um, because it's a huge part of the sound. Yeah. And so that's why I put the output control on the plugin is um, you do need to, to work with that. And some people have had some issues with it, but when I explain that it's the reason it has the sound, it does a big part of it. Um, it makes sense to people. So, so do you have an input control and an output control, or how, how do we visualize this? No, the input is just controlled from whatever you're sending. Um, that would just get a little too unwieldy, I mm-hmm. think, to have it on both sides. But to be able to make up that gain, because this is actually working like an amplifier uh, as well as, as a reverb, but that's why the detail is there. A lot of the detail comes from, from that in the plugin. So I'm trying to picture it. So it means what you're s- describing is that I'm sending low levels of information to the plate and then I need to turn the gain of the plate back up to bring it back up for the mix. No, you'll need to actually bring the plate down. It actually has more gain to it than a normal reverb plugin would have. Your okay, typical. I see. All right, dig it. So the output because lets you get this this kind of strong tone but but turn it back down so it's not overtaking your mix. Exactly, because the amplifiers were part of the modeling of the two plates. It's not just the the response, the impulse responses. Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, now, what about, um, oh, and then just to make sure I heard you clearly, you said that the pre-delay is not a full frequency pre-delay. It delays the, like it, it doesn't no, it delay is, the, yeah. oh, it, it is. Okay, all right. It is, it's full frequency, um, and it's literally just delaying the signal. It's not a modulated delay algorithm. I see, I see. Um, so one of the things that I remember learning as an intern, uh, one of the first tricks I learned from Bob Solomon at Woodland Studios was we had these plate reverbs and he was like, oh, well, take take your send and go over to the quarter inch tape machine first and delay it slightly at 30 ips on its way. You know, get like a, use the vary speed and get like a 20 millisecond delay before it hits the plate and it really opens it up. And I heard that and I was like, wow, you know, so yeah. it's great that you build that right in. Genius. I mean, it's it's genius that like those guys thought to use tape machines to create delays like that. You know, back then. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about the Elvis recordings and the ones before RCA that were Sun Studios. That's what the delay was. It's incredible. You know. Um. So talk a little bit about good use. Like, how would we, would we just take this plugin and just plop it right on a on the guitar track, or would we send this up and send it from the guitar track over to the plugin? What's the difference of those two things for the rock stars, if you want to explain that? This was really designed to be used on an aux track. So um, uh, it's it's designed to be used the way a plate would be used in a studio. And that being said, you can do whatever you like. Um, but the way that the gain staging is built and obviously the processing power, it takes a lot of power to make something like this sound the way it does. Mm-hmm. And by using... Maybe I, I typically use two instances of it in a mix. I'll have one set to US and one set to e to the EU setting, mm-hmm. and um, and I'll have them on aux tracks, and I'll just send off 
from different sources into the plates. Maybe one might be set shorter and one might be set longer. Um, and, and yeah, you just, you know, use it the way a plate would be used in a, in a big studio in the analog days and it wor- and works great. Okay. So, so I'm going to keep digging hard here. So not all of us have been in a big studio in the analog days. So what about, I, I feel like long reverbs are kind of easy to conceive of. You're like, oh yeah, we, you know, you put the vocal or something, you get this nice big washy long reverb. That's cool. Maybe, maybe dial it in slightly. But the the mystery world is the short uses of plate reverb when you really shorten it. Where are some places that that's super useful in a production? And a rock record for me, or even like a pop vocal, like a lot of times in the verse when you want it to feel close, but have that like, have that little bit of ambience around it that just sort of like makes it sit bigger in the mix. Mm -hmm. The plates have, these plates and the amplifiers in these plates have an incredible sort of mass to them in the way that they sound. So on the lower settings, typically like the setting of the shortest setting on both of these plates is about uh, 0.9. That's what it is. And um, by the way, any 0.9 plate plugin, seconds, right? Yeah. One sec- any plate plugin that has a shorter version of that is not a real impulse. It's a, it's a faded impulse because it's almost impossible to make an eight foot plate reverb go any shorter than that, unless you put your hands on the plate and, and dampen it. Right. Um, so uh, if you, Go to that shortest setting, like in the verse of a track when that vocal first enters on a pop song, and you work the um, the high cut filter back just to where you don't notice the sort of the the decay of the plate, and you toggle between bypassing that on and off, you'll hear a massive difference in the way the vocal sits in a track. Cool, cool. So it's like a like a secret effect on your vocal. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that you hear when you hit stop, you know, and the, but you don't hear it in the track, you know. Um, you, what about percussion and drums? Where, where are some places we might use a plate reverb as part of our drum sound? This plate is fantastic on snare drum. I mean, it's one of the magic things. Actually, snare and toms, if it's the right track. Um, but I love uh, I love working that pre delay up so you get that the hard smack transient of the snare drum hit and then just set the decay for the amount of, of loft that you want to, to after that hit. And, um, which might be, you know, short, it might be like you're trying to sort of get a little longer than the sustain of the snare drum kind of sound or. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You can make it the shorter settings. You can make it sound like the snare just actually had that type of sound, you know, like the snares were actually resonating that length. Um, but you can also do, uh, do some really cool sort of ambient, you know, real, real trippy, spacey kind of stuff yeah. too. And yeah. the, the plate never gets spitty sounding, you know, like, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of like the, the algorithm based reverbs, you know, that we typically have been using in, in the box that weren't made from, you know, no one took the care to make these, you know, to make uh, amazing impulses of they have a spit spitty quality of them because it's a bunch of delays kind of lined up together to create the the decay time and uh with a plate you don't get that you know you get the there's a metallic kind of glow which i think is a beautiful sound um but uh you don't get that spit sound of the plate and so when you're using it on something like a snare drum or even tom hits you can get it to sit in a mix 
uh, in a much smoother way uh, than an algorithm-based uh, That's cool. um, reverb. That's cool. I, I feel like one of the struggles I've had with finding reverbs for drums is um, is maybe the spit thing you're talking about. It's it's like when I turn it up loud enough to hear it, my my instinct is like I don't want to hear that. I'm going to turn it back down again, um, or you know, or there's a boing to a reverb when you, when a snare drum hits it, and you're like, that doesn't sound right. Totally. Um, yeah. So that's cool if this this is you know kind of sorted that out in a certain way. Any any uh, tips you want to share about getting like kind of some of the crazy big gated snare drum sounds from the '80s and that kind of thing? Is there is this would it be useful for that? Yeah, I mean you could do. I mean you could literally do. You could put a gate after this, and you could literally gate the signal of the reverb and make real. You know those gated reverbs that were made uh, before you had, um, you know, before the AMS uh, RMX sixteen and the Eventide, you know, started started gating the reverb algorithms in those boxes. People would literally gate the reverb, you know. Um, and a how, lot of times, how would you be, even do that? How would you even set that up? Well, there's a couple ways. I mean, I remember, um, I remember uh, in the earlier days of like analog recording for me, um, a lot of times you'd want you'd want the reverb and especially in the eighties, you'd want a lot of reverb on that snare drum. And, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily want the hi-hat or anything else, uh, to kind of be sort of sloshing around in the reverb. So one, one way you could do that was gate the send. So you could gate before going into the reverb, which would just be like, so the hi-hat wasn't, wasn't going in, but the snare was going into the reverb and you could get more reverb on the snare, uh, without it being, uh, this big washy mess. That's a specific sound. Um, but you know, the other way, if you wanted to really do, um, you know, the other side of that would be gate post, put a gate on the post uh, side of the reverb, you know, and trim that, that release time down so that it is creating its own sort of fade in sort of like a, uh, a percussive way, Mm -hmm. uh, to get, to get the sound you want. And what would yeah. open the gate? Would it be the reverb sound itself, or would you send a dry signal of the snare to a side chain of that gate after the reverb? Yeah, I mean, you could. It depends on the track. I mean, you know, you could trigger that gate from the actual snare uh, signal for more consistency, which is probably what what I would recommend doing. Um, and so you would set the gate with a side chain coming from the snare in pre, you know, I would mark that send in pre. So it's just the same every time it hits and, uh, hits the gate. So that's actuating the gate, but the gate is actually positioned in the audio path after the reverb. Right on. Cool. Awesome, dude. Well, thank you for kind of describing those. Um, well, I, I think this is exciting. I, I'm really looking forward to digging more into transatlantic plate reverb. Um, I've only just begun to dabble with it, but what I heard already sounded really fantastic. Uh, and I kind of want to like put it on while I'm singing and sing into it and just like <laughs> have this giant reverb. I want to play guitar into it and just hear what all that sounds like. I can't wait yeah. to uh, put it on the tambourine track overdub, you know, when oh, it's, yeah. the tambo is hitting on the quarter notes or hitting on the snares rather. So and, good. Um, <laughs> uh, but let's, let's just sort of, uh, we've been going for a good long time, but we've had lots of great stuff to talk about. Let's jump to um, our closing question. Um, this one is hypothetical. But I want to ask you uh, if we're going to take the Wayback Studio machine and you could go back to early when you were, you know, getting ready to 
record music. I guess you were hauling your tape machines around <laughs> and done all this stuff. Uh, and if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice and, and say like, uh, young Brian, this is the single most important thing that you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What would you, what would you go back and give yourself for advice? Oh boy. I would have an earful for myself. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the first things that come to my mind are, um, uh, that, you know, when I, when I, when I was younger, I, I basically just tried to do everything, like everything. And, um, although that attitude was great and, you know, the energy of that was great for me, um, you know, achieving consistency, uh, was tricky until I had a home base, like consistency in my listening space made a giant difference in my, in my recordings. Mm -hmm. Um, not just my recordings, but the mixing and, um, you know, that, that would be, that would be one thing that I think, uh, try to, no matter where, where I am, try to, try to get some form of consistency, whether that's like a pair of headphones. And obviously that's easier now with laptops and having things be more portable. Um, but when I was freelancing all over the universe, yeah, I got to be honest with you. Some things, sometimes I had hit or miss moments, you know. Um, yeah, you're, you're, and, you're changing the goalposts all the time. Yeah. And once I had one place where I mixed like all the time or like, or even, you know, when I got, when, when Zippa became my place too, and I could, uh, I could track there a lot and, you know, I've done thousands of records in that space now and it just makes sense to me and it allows me to be more concentrating on the music, concentrating on how the artist feels, uh, what the general feel is in the room. Um, those types of things. Um, yeah. The, I guess if there was one other thing I would say, um, and I didn't realize this until much later, but, um, when I started producing more, um, and working from a songwriter angle of working on song structure and musical arrangement and making those things really, um, really working those things out before I went into record when I started doing more pre-production stuff with bands, I found that everything was easier. Uh, mixing, like my mixes always sounded better when my musical arrangement and my song structure even were, uh, were worked out. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry we didn't get a lot of chance to talk about song stuff. Maybe you'll have to come back on if we want to do that topic specifically, because sure. I could talk about songs all day if we want. <laughs> yeah. Great. I would love to. Yeah. Well, um, awesome, dude. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. It's super cool to meet you. Uh, I'm, I'm like, I want to take a road trip to Boston now. Um, I also want to rewind the clock two decades and not miss all the stuff I missed up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to see you if you come to town. Please let me know. Uh, let the rock stars know how they can find you online, follow you. Uh, where can they go check out the, the reverb? How do they check out your studio? All this stuff. Yeah, so to check out the reverb, uh, go to raresignals.com, and there's a lot of cool information there, and you can download a free trial. Um, if you want to check out my recording studio, it's zippa.com, Z-I-P-P-A-H.com. And if you're interested in the Tuesday Night Recording Club series where we nerded out about classic recordings, um, you can see the blog and video posts uh, on zippa.com. Just click on Tuesday Night Recording Club on the right-hand side. 
Are you and, still doing uh, those now, or was that a series that you did before? Uh, we haven't done one in a while. Um, there's a Van Halen one, Van Halen 1984, oh, yeah. that never got released. So we might we might get that one together. Got to do it, it now. That's called accountability. Everybody <laughs> yeah, knows know. about it. Yeah. Well, th- I mean, the, there's so many cool things about the way that that gigantic record was made. And I guess we'll have to come back and talk about it more. But I mean, they used Simmons drums on that and stuff, like things I never oh, realized. Cool, cool. Was that also done at Sunset Sound or was that one of the, er- the earlier mm-hmm. stuff that was done there? It was, it was mainly done at their own studio. Eddie had a new house and they they zoned it as a racquetball court to get the zoning, but they recorded in it. <laughs> well, we are making a racket. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm going to quote you if I get that one out. You'll be in the blog. For awesome. That. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thanks so much, Rockstars. I encourage you to go try out Transatlantic Plate Reverb um, and, and check it out in your, your dog. We didn't talk about this, but I feel like I've heard people describe Reaper as a very, very CPU-friendly DAW for plugins. So I wonder if um, if you're a Reaper user, you might be able to use a whole ton of them if you want to. Yeah, feel free to cool. send me an email and let me know. You know, um, and and then uh, go check out Zippa Studios. And again, I've got links to stuff we're talking about. It'll be in the show notes. You can just click through on your mobile device, or if you're on the uh, you know on, on um, your desktop, it's right there in the show notes. And the YouTube playlist with some of the great records that Brian's made. And while you're there, please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel and uh, hit that notification bell and drop in some comments. What question do you have for the rock stars that they should comment on, Brian? What would you like to know from them in the YouTube comments or in the blog post comments? Uh, I would like to know how many people are are mixing in the box these days. I think a a lot of people are, but I'd like to know how many people that were once not mixing in the box are mixing in the box. Okay, cool. There you go, rock stars. That's your prompt. I'll I'll try and be the first one to comment in there too. All right. Thanks so much, Brian. I, I look forward to hanging out with you in person. When you come down to Nashville, let's connect for sure. Thank you, Lidge. All right, dude. Cheers. Talk soon. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.